0: The leadership path is rarely a straight line. In fact, the path to the top is more often a zigzag, moving forward and back. That's how today's guest, Sherry Backstein, journeyed from TV reporter to CEO of The Weather Company, parent of The Weather Channel. She shares that journey, its leadership lessons, and the big impacts of weather on every leader. We can help you pave your path upward, too. From leadership assessments to online courses, the Innovative Leadership Institute has tools to assist you on your journey up. Check them out at InnovativeLeadership.com.
1: This is Innovating Leadership Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute, where we help leaders be future ready. Helping us in that mission today is Sherry Backstein, CEO of The Weather Company, parent company of The Weather Channel. We'll be talking about what businesses should expect with the changing climate. Sherry, we're glad you're with us.
0: Hi, Maureen. It's great to be here.
1: Let's just dive in and start talking about the weather. I realize that's something people typically do at parties not intending it to be the business of the weather.
0: Why should leaders care about the weather? It is a great question, and I I love talking about the weather even at parties. But from a leader's perspective, we have not found, and I challenge anybody to find, where weather does not impact every single business. So whether it's supply chain, it could be marketing. It can be what you're advertising. All areas of businesses can be impacted by weather. With our weather patterns being very erratic right now, very changing, you know, you could anticipate in the summer it's going to be hot, maybe there's some thunderstorms. But what's become harder to anticipate is that these severe storms are happening in the wintertime. So it's catching companies and, frankly, consumers off guard. And so really having a weather strategy can help your bottom line. It can help your top line as well as a business. And I think it's really important that companies look to have a weather strategy.
1: Tell me a little bit more about what does it mean to have a weather strategy? And I assume that's across the range of businesses from those impacted by supply chain dramatically to those for whom rain changes their customer shopping patterns?
0: There's some industries, obviously, more impacted by others. If you think about the aviation business, for example, about 70% of all aviation delays are due to weather. And so you see companies like American Airlines really investing heavily in their operations centers and having meteorologists on staff. Because it's not only about how much does that delay cost you from you have to put more fuel on an airplane and delays, but also the comfort of your passengers, right, and the satisfaction of your passengers. And so it really impacts businesses like that. And so really businesses need to think, let me think through my entire end-to-end process and supply chain of how I deliver my good or my service And where along that path can weather be an influencer? If you think about a clothing company, for example, well, it can impact the yield that might be on cotton. So that's going to cost more than to the manufacturing plan if it's a very hot day. You know, you have major pressures on power in types of manufacturing situations. But then how am I getting that product to market through logistics? Then it comes down to, okay, when is that product? Should it be on the shelf of the store? Because consumers are going to want to buy that product based around weather. So all aspects of it. And then really figuring out, okay, I need weather data. And hopefully it's really good, accurate weather data, especially for mission critical work like aviation. And then where can I pair that data with other data sets? And so from a retail perspective, maybe it's buying data, you know, what's that purchase data? And then how can I see trends? Because then you can apply sciences like AI to look at trends. And so now you have, okay, this is what happened. How, one, do I prevent that from happening again? And then two, Let's look to the future so we can plan better. And that's really what I mean by a weather strategy is how do you take historical, current, and forecast data? And then really, Maureen, what I think is the fourth data set that's completely overlooked is probabilistic weather data. In the weather space, we come up with a deterministic forecast. So this is the best forecast that we think is what's going to happen. But there's also probability that something could happen on either side of that forecast. And it's really important for companies to know that variability so they have their plan A and their plan B.
1: Actually, I was looking at our geographic area. We're in an El Nino year. There's a 40% probability that we'll have higher than normal snow this year. That's right. Which is relevant. And to your point, probabilistic helps me plan my travel for clients to whom I drive that are two hours away. And I drive a sports car. It's terrible in the snow. That 40% probability means I have to be looking at rental cars. I mean, that's just the most rudimentary piece of the forecast. But for me getting to a location, it matters.
0: Well, I think it's extremely important. You know, as a business leader, I'm traveling all the time and I look at the forecast of the airport I'm leaving from and the airport I'm going to. And if I think that there's going to be bad weather, I will change my flight. Because I don't want to be delayed. You know, I don't want to sit on the tarmac of any airport. And so it can help consumers and business leaders make just the simplest of decisions like that that are very impactful, but then just apply that to your business as a whole. And like I said, it can definitely be a cost savings, but then it also could add to your top line. Say more about how it adds to a top line. When you think about consumer buying behavior, very much impacted by the weather, We know that through our data and our science that weather impacts what people want to buy. So if you knew that a situation or a scenario where consumers wanted to buy your product was coming two weeks out, you could make sure you have ample supply in the store. A great example of this a few years ago, the flu season was really a severe flu season. The challenge with that data is that data coming from the CDC is two weeks behind. So you're not getting what's happening now or in the future. We actually put together a flu prediction that goes two weeks out. So you can give a retailer a heads up that you may need to stock some more cold medicine or flu medicine. So it caught several companies off guard and they actually missed the season because it was much more severe than what was predicted. So that encouraged us to come up with this flu prediction. That was really the catalyst around that. So just a missed opportunity. People subscribe to your data. Yes. We definitely provide our raw data. And so there's benefits to that historical, real-time, future forecasting data. But we also provide insights. That is really where the industries are going. You have what we believe is the most accurate data. We combine that with other data. We apply AI or other technologies, machine learning, and come up with an insight. That then will help our partners, our clients make decisions. So it's not just the data alone, but what can you do with that data? What can that data tell you that really then helps a business make decisions? I'm just thinking about longitudinal historic
1: data, and I realize you do both historic and predictive. But if I could look at December 10th for the last 50 years, what's likely to happen on that day, and then add the predictive and probabilistic for this year? It's an El Nino year? El Nino, yes. So if I look at past El Ninos, what's the probability of a weather deviation this year? And if I'm doing anything client-facing, that will impact whether my clients leave their houses in some cases.
0: Oh, absolutely. And you know, historic data is really the foundation of all of these AI models that are coming out, whether it's in weather or in other businesses. It all stems from some type of historical data. It could be weather data, it could be sale data, etc. But you apply that science there, so then you can see the trends, right? So then it helps you become even more predictive in the future.
1: Just thinking of a client I had years ago and all of the analysis we did over time by product line, we knew when it was likely that a client would buy X product over Y. And so when did we need to start producing ship and stop producing that product? So that data specifically related to the weather. The one example was like, when do people buy lawnmowers in different geographic areas? And that led to production. And for my client... When do they ship the raw materials to go into the lawnmowers to get produced, to get to whatever store in time for mowing season that this year may be March
0: rather than May? I'm glad you brought up geography because it's so important, right? It really is relative to the location where you are, because if you think about someone in Boston, when it's, you know, 55 degrees in Boston, they are probably maybe hanging out at their local pub, being outdoors, you know, because that's pretty mild weather. You take 55 degrees in Miami and you have your Uggs on and your sweater and, and you're, you're probably staying indoors. So it is really relative to where people are used to and where they are that makes it so important. You know, what's interesting is, you know, we created what we call weather triggers and we've applied the science so that we could give to marketers a trigger that says, okay, you want the best scenario by which maybe coffee will sell. And we've already figured out what those parameters are. So they could just take that trigger. They can apply it to their advertising campaign. So let's say we're Dunkin' Donuts, for example. You could apply it to your advertising campaign. And then anytime that weather is going to be those parameters in a location, that ad could fire for you. So it's a way of targeting your message, which, Maureen, what's really great about this is it's privacy forward, right? So with everything happening in the privacy landscape, marketers are going to need privacy forward ways to now target consumers. And weather is such a great opportunity for that. Like
1: many people, I'm on Amazon fairly regularly. If it is like today gray in Columbus, Ohio, whatever weather-related product I might buy would pop up on my screen to advertise. And to your point, it doesn't target me based on some privacy-based factor. It's weather-related. So anyone in Columbus, Ohio might get that ad.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting. It's about buying behavior. But the other thing that weather does, it impacts your mood. So if it's gray in Ohio today, you might be online shopping more than you normally would be, because maybe that's a behavior that happens because of the mood that you're in as well. So it's not only is it the right time to buy something. And of course, there's the obvious examples, you know, when it's the summertime, you buy ice cream. But maybe what people don't understand is in the wintertime, you're cold, you're hunkered down in your house, right? And you want comfort food when it's cold, we want to sit at home in front of the television, watch a movie. One of the number one comfort foods is ice cream. So ice cream sellers see that spike because of that mood that being in the house during the winter has. And so those are just some interesting ah ahas for certain marketers. They're like, wow. And that's just looking at their data, their sale data mixed with weather data. Oh, what's this spike? What's behind that spike and understanding that? So there's a lot of aha moments for marketers when they really start digging into that. How do people integrate your data and insights into their analytics systems? there's a couple ways that it can be done. Obviously, there's direct integration where they can use our APIs and they can directly put that data into their platforms. And if they have a team of data scientists, they can create those insights. We also have an insights platform that you can give us your data and we'll do the work for you and help you understand that. And then there's other ways we're doing it where we're working through partnerships with advertising agencies to integrate our triggers, our advertising triggers, right into their platform so they can better help their customers. And so really, weather data is becoming quite pervasive, and then it's really the insights. We want the insights to become just as pervasive for that decisioning. You know, one of the industries that's really impacted by weather is the healthcare industry, not only from an insurance perspective, but from a pharma perspective as well. And so that's just a great application outside of retail as well. Before we got started, we talked a little bit about
1: the correlation between weather and health. And I think especially with the climate change summits and some of the other research that there's a strong correlation with extreme heat and health. What are you seeing and how are you using that data to help your clients? We do a lot
0: of user data on our platform as you know, at the Weather Channel, we have about 350 million monthly active users, and so we're always curious how we can better serve them. So we did a study, and we always knew there was this connection between health and weather, but we were definitely a little more surprised to learn that 70% of our users come to one of our platforms at least once a week to manage a health symptom. Because we know that weather can cause and bring on symptoms around health. If you think about allergies, think about barometric pressure can impact someone having migraines, you hear cold fronts with arthritis. Because of that, we have started leaning in to say, okay, how can we connect those dots for you if we know that maybe you have symptoms, you know, related to these in particular types of illnesses? That's where we're really doing a lot of research. We did a lot with the cold and flu prediction, as I mentioned, with allergies. We now have breathing. How's air quality going to impact your breathing from both an asthma perspective, but there's also COPD. And so it is becoming more and more understood that weather has such an impact on your health. It also has a positive impact, right? The sun, one of the most natural providers of vitamin D. And so people need to be out, even during the wintertime, getting some of that vitamin D, right? So there's really a lot of impacts on physical health, but then also on mental health and kind of those moods, but on your mental state as well. It is, I think, important that we continue to do that research and determine what are some ways that weather maybe causes those symptoms and can we give someone a heads up that, hey, today is a kind of day that is conducive to migraines. Maybe you want to be prepared for that.
1: And I'm assuming that information could go to either final consumers like me who does get headaches with storms that I might get an alert on my phone that says, hey, Stormfront coming or something, but also to my local pharmacy or grocery store yep. that says we're going to have an increase in pollen. Put the Flonase on the end cap today.
0: That's absolutely right. You could do it from a retail perspective, a pharma perspective, but even think about health insurance their end customer is a consumer. So if I could send you an alert as if I'm your insurer to say, hey, you know, we know you suffer from diabetes and we know it's going to be an excessively hot day and that could impact your insulin levels, just here's a warning for you. Or air quality is really high in your area today. There's a lot of PM 2.5 in the air. Why don't you do an indoor activity because we know you have asthma? And so there's ways too that um, health insurers just a prime example of how they can help consumers make better decisions.
1: It seems so beneficial both to consumers and to the businesses that
0: support them. Oh, absolutely. There's a lot of use cases for how weather can be helpful in helping people make decisions. It could be from very simple what to buy, when to buy, all the way to the more serious of how do I keep my family safe? How do I stay safe? And so there's a lot of applications to it. I think our job as a weather organization, and and I really feel in the industry as a whole, we've given everybody just a bunch of data and kind of let you figure it out yourself. We have to take it to the next level to help people connect those dots and let us give you a little bit more information or like what we say, insights to say this is what this actually could mean for you to help you make that decision.
1: I love that you're connecting the poor air quality to indoor activities. Now, we would hope that most people have figured that out, but I'm assuming that you're giving data that require much more complex insights.
0: absolutely. I mean, there's definitely the common sense things. If you look outside, it's hazy. You know, you shouldn't go outside. There's a lot of pollutants and things in the air that may not be as visible to the eye as well that you're seeing. And then, of course, we also know that when you look at air quality, free radicals can impact your skin, aging of your skin. Those are things a lot of cosmetic companies use that in some of their marketing and some of their creations of formulas around how does poor air quality lead to the breakdown of your skin cells and so forth. I should pay more attention
1: to cosmetics, I guess.
0: (laughs) Definitely a balance, right? Too much sun, not enough sun. Yeah, you got to find that right mix. What other initiatives are you really excited about? There's a few things that we're really digging our heels into. One actually just launched last week around simulation, defense simulation. A lot of war gaming activities go on within different parts of the military, whether it's U.S. and outside of the U.S. It's how we train the military for different scenarios. And what was fascinating, Maureen, is as we started looking at this industry and and having conversations, we found that... A lot of these simulations and planning exercises were using simulated weather. They weren't using real weather and real-time weather. So we started talking about that and saying, you have access to real-time weather. You have access to forecasted weather. You can better plan for those scenarios um, by using that data. And the response has been overwhelming because now we're getting into, if you hear the term metaverse, it started out really strong. It kind of got this negative perspective, but the metaverse hasn't gone away. What the metaverse is, is it's the virtual world that we can use to make our real world better. So you can put these scenarios in a virtual world, apply weather data to help figure out, okay, in this scenario, these are what the troops need to do and and those behaviors. And then that helps with the real world and making sure that those missions are safe and and those teams are safe. And so that is something we are really leaning into. We're really excited about it, being able to do better weather planning, have weather planning tools that provide those insights I was talking about. Mm -hmm. If you think about, okay, we're going to do a mission and we're going to be in a Black Hawk helicopter, for example. Okay, maybe this is not the right time for that mission because along that path, there's going to be some kind of severe weather or something like that. So you can start it an hour earlier, an hour later. When we look at the fidelity of the weather data that we have and how granular it can get down to one kilometer, you can really lean in here with some really great visualizations around that. So that's one area very excited about. I think the other area that going to impact all of us is where you get your weather. And one of the most up and coming is in your car. And so you're going to see more and more car manufacturers, Google Gas, for example, is an app store within your car. We just launched our weather app there as well. So you're going to be able to get the weather data you get on your phone or if you watch on TV or wherever now in your car. And that's fantastic because along your journey, we're going to be able to tell you if you're driving into a storm or if you're driving into some flooding rains, et cetera. So those things are really exciting as to where consumers and businesses can access data.
1: I consulted years ago with an Air Force missile organization. They tested the missiles, but they didn't test them in sandstorms, which in Iraq, there are sandstorms. Oh, yeah. What they learned was the missiles weren't built to withstand sandstorms. And so the weather conditions caused them to have to go back and re-engineer parts of the actual missiles. Back then, had they understood weather data in a more granular way, they would have actually designed for the environment in which
0: these munitions would be deployed. We like to refer that to like aerosol type data and sandstorms or wildfires, another example of that. There's been some progress there, but there's more that can be done because again, up until now, they're using synthetic data, not real data, right? And a sandstorm is very much, you know, you should be able to try to figure out are conditions conducive to a storm like that happening. And so the sandstorms are still somewhat of a challenge. The science is getting much better around that. And certainly smoke from wildfires, definitely, because we're seeing, of course, an increase in that as well as you talk about more erratic weather. The Acapulco hurricane went from
1: a Cat 1 to a Cat 5 overnight was predicted to be a CAT-1 and within 12 hours escalated in a way that was not aligned with previous weather models.
0: It was definitely one of those scenarios that was incredibly hard to predict. And by the time that, you know, you could actually see that that was happening, it was far too late. You could do a warning, but not many people could act upon it, right? Because it takes a long time to evacuate and so forth. We are seeing that these types of erratic storms are increasing. In fact, if you just look at this year, besides that hurricane, a couple things. Hottest year on record, it's going to be 2023, for example. We've had devastating flooding, including in New York City, right, of all places. You wouldn't necessarily expect that. Southern California had its first tropical storm in 80 years. And so we're definitely seeing these weather trends shifting and becoming a little bit more erratic and more severe. And in fact, nearly half a trillion dollars in economic impact is attributed to weather every single year. And so that is expected definitely to increase. So again, really important that we are investing in the science and investing in the ways that we can predict these scenarios to give people at least the information so they can make decisions. Now, whether people will make those decisions, whether we will prove our infrastructure in cities to help reduce these types of catastrophes, then that's something that the government and individuals will have to make those decisions.
1: The predictions part and how it connects to our government and infrastructure seems like it will be crucial over the next decade and beyond as we look at things like climate refugees. And how many physical locations will look different 10 to 20 years from now?
0: Oh, absolutely. You know, one of the biggest problems that likely will be happening if we don't do something about it with climate changing is the scarcity of water. And, you know, we did a big water campaign a few years ago, unlocked tens of thousands of gallons of water for areas that just don't have clean water. And when you look at that, I mean, here the United States, I think we take that for granted a little bit because we do some interesting things. You run the water the whole time you're brushing your teeth, for example. We probably waste more water than we think about. But when you look at countries where people are having to walk eight hours a day just to get to a water source, and then that water source is far from being clean, you realize that there are parts of the planet where you're already seeing the scarcity. And so those are things that we really have to pay attention to from a humanity perspective because water is is critical, critical for a life source.
1: We were in Vancouver earlier this year and just did the tourist bus thing. One of the things they talked about because they're on the water is flooding they've seen and the prediction of future larger scale floods. They actually, on the bus tour, talked about the trade-off in investing in hardening flood walls, retaining walls, or do we just give up this piece of land back to the water? And there was both a historic cost and an economic cost in that equation. It does seem that if it's making its way to the tourist bus, that governments are absolutely considering with great analysis those kinds of decisions.
0: Some aspects of flooding are very hard to predict, right? And there's a lot of great work and research going on right now because you have to understand the topography of the land and the soil moisture. But if it's an urban area, that's a little bit harder to predict. And then it's the rate at which the rain falls, et cetera. And so how much capacity do those sewer systems have? you know, how fast can they drain the water? And so there's definitely, you know, a lot of work to be done in understanding that. But there's no doubt with where technology is going that if we collaborate across research entities, whether companies like ours, governments, that we can collaborate to find solutions. That's a really
1: encouraging statement because we hear and right now the cop twenty eight meetings are happening and global governments attending, and really the question of what are we committing to and how are we collaborating to address some very sticky issues.
0: Now more than ever, I think we're seeing the impacts of climate and weather. More and more, no one can refute that our climate isn't changing. You see evidence of it every year. And so it is then comes down to what do we do about it? What do we do about it as a collective society and how do we work together? Because it really impacts all of us, doesn't matter what region of the planet you're in, climate is impacting all of us in different ways because not every weather scenario is climate change, right? And I think that's important to understand. There's some things that are cyclical that have been happening in weather for a long time, but more and more we are seeing events that are certainly a direct impact of that climate changing. So how do we work together to find these solutions and to do it rather quickly? And so I think that that's really important. You know, when you think about just in 2022, you think about this stat that 3 million Americans were displaced by extreme weather. And that's just in the United States, right? Those are people displaced from their homes, disrupted their homes, their jobs, etc. That's a really big number. And you multiply that by different regions of the world. And that's even a bigger amount of people.
1: If we don't harden certain civil infrastructure, some of those locations, they won't be able to go back to their homes sustainably. New Orleans is below sea level. If something isn't done, the probability is about 100 percent
0: that something will happen there. In a lot of cases, these vulnerabilities have been there for a long, long time. When I first started uh, the Weather Channel, one of the first documentaries that I did was called Vulnerable Cities. And we looked at seven cities, and this was as it related to hurricanes, looked at about seven cities along the U.S. coast that were vulnerable to hurricanes, not only because that cyclical, the timing of which hurricanes would always hit, but that topography where they were on sea level. And honestly, those cities are still vulnerable cities. Because of these things, and so now populations have grown even more in these cities, right? You think of the migration of people certainly going to Florida. It's great state, no state tax. It is great weather most of the time. So now you have even more growth there and more people and more buildings and structures. And so that increases the amount of economic impact when a storm does hit and the number of people that can be in harm's way or certainly be displaced. People,
1: to your point, continue to migrate at an increasing rate to places that are predicted to have an increasing rate of climate-related issues.
0: You know, it's interesting when we look at Gen Z and Gen Y, they actually now are taking that into consideration where some of those impacts are happening when they decide where to move. We're seeing that a little bit more and more come up in some of the user data that we're doing That's now becoming a consideration, which, like you just said, Maureen, for baby boomers and millennials, it's like, I'm going to the beach, right? I'm moving to the coast or I'm moving to some place that provides some kind of probably outdoor activity benefit or something. So I think it's really interesting how we're seeing a little bit of that mind shift change in the younger generation. I wonder if that's because some of these predictions are within their lifetime.
1: In 2025 and 2050, X things will happen. That's
0: in their window. They are very conscientious around our planet and the climate. They're just growing up where there's more information about it. There's more things happening. We're just growing up a generation that's more conscientious around it and wanting to help as well. And so I think they just take that into consideration,
1: which is good. Companies are now making location decisions based in part on weather. If you're building a $20 billion manufacturing facility, it is wise to look at weather as one of the factors.
0: It definitely should be a factor. What I will say is that, unfortunately, I don't know of any place in the planet you're going to escape some type of weather either, right? Because you live on the coast. It's hurricanes. It could be nor'easters. You live on the West Coast. You're faced with earthquakes and wildfires. Maybe in the heartland, you know, you have tornadoes. So there is just this extreme weather that really happens anywhere. Are there areas that are less likely or have a, you know, the frequency is not as great? Absolutely. If you're locating a consulting
1: business, it may not matter as much. But if you're making significant capital investments, the type of weather issues would certainly impact. If You don't want something that is sensitive to vibration in
0: an earthquake area. Yeah, absolutely. That's incredibly important. If you're a big manufacturing plant, you probably don't want to be somewhere where there's excessive heat either, right? So yeah, definitely a lot of different considerations when selecting not only where to put your business, but now you know where you want to live as well.
1: What should business leaders be thinking about beyond what you and I have talked about with regard to the weather, analytics, insights, AI, our listeners are running businesses, they're listening to this, what questions might they have that you would like to
0: answer or should they have that you would like to answer? Do you have a weather strategy not only for how you run your business but for your employees, right? The safety of your employees if, if your employees are, is on site as an example. So I think there's all aspects of to that. And so really leaning in to better understand there may be areas that you don't really even realize are impacted by weather, right, that could be an opportunity or, or an efficiency. So I think that that's important. And then I think I would say just from a humanity perspective, you know, how is your company helping with some of these challenges? And are you leaning in to really help maybe with some of the issues that weather and climate is impacting? We all can do our part there.
1: Any recommendations for what that means to do our part? Because it's easy to feel powerless, like what I do doesn't matter in the the scheme of 8 billion people on the planet.
0: Yeah, I think that that's an important comment because you do have to help people understand what exactly they can do to help. I think at the heart of it, everybody wants to help, right? I don't think anybody is ever saying, I don't want to do that. I don't want to help someone. I don't want to help a situation. But I do think that we have to bring it down to a very simplistic level of what can I as Sherry do to help the situation or what could I do as a business leader to help the situation? And I, I do think that we have to break that down. And I'll give you just an example. I mentioned the water scarcity project that we did. Yes, we can tell people that climate is impacting the amount of water and we can say why and everything. And people are gonna be like, oh, that's great. That's really interesting to know. Not that it's great, but it's Mm -hmm. great to have that information to understand that. But I'm just going to go about my day because I'm one person and I really can't do anything about it. Well, not really true, right? Because you can conserve water in your area, as an example, and change your habits, right? You could understand how much running the dishwasher, how much water you use, so do you make sure it's actually full and don't run it half empty and things like that. And so there are ways that we can help the planet. We have to get back to educating and helping people understand this is how you as an individual or a company can actually make those impacts. And it's going to be different for what different types of impacts of climate change because there's there's a lot of them, right? There's water scarcity, there's pollution, etc. And so I think just leaning into one of those areas and kind of being dedicated to that is something that companies can do.
1: And I guess it starts with, again, back to having a plan and prioritizing it.
0: It gets back to understanding the information and then figuring out how do you use that information.
1: Let's shift a little bit to your career. You talked about starting doing documentaries.
0: My career actually started as a journalist. I went to school for journalism and went to work for a local news affiliate in Atlanta. I honestly thought I was gonna be a news anchor. You know, I wanted to be Katie Couric, right? That's what I wanted to be. That was the path that I was on. And actually went into producing and putting shows together as as a local news provider here in Atlanta. And that was really exciting work. And then the Weather Channel recruited me. It took about two years for me to say yes. And went over there, and the pace was so much slower at that time than the news organization. I was used to really live television, making decisions on the fly. I actually won an Emmy for the Atlanta bombing that happened here because I was actually produced for 12 hours straight. It's such an adrenaline rush to be able to do such live television. But coming to the Weather Channel is a much slower pace, and I actually thought, oh, my gosh, what have I done to my career here, you know? But then, like anything, you you give yourself time to adapt. And then what I loved about this is we were a company with a mission. And we have the same mission today, right? To give people information, to make decisions, to keep them safe. And I thought, wow, I work for a company that has a higher purpose. Yes, we're a for-profit company, but at the heart of it, it's about keeping people safe. And we all rally around that mission. And so it was great. So I started writing documentaries. Then I became a storm chaser. So I was on the live team, and we went out and covered storms. And so we essentially chased storms. We got there before the storm, because again, all about helping people prepare. Then we were there through the storm and and certainly covered the aftermath. And so I really saw firsthand the power of weather. I saw the beauty of weather, because there are some storms that are just so beautiful to watch, but then there's some storms that have such a tragic result that I got to see all aspects of it. And, you know, when you have a perfect stranger come up and hug you and say, thank you, because you saved our lives, it, it makes you step back and really say like, wow, you know, what we're doing is such a good public service. Yeah, that's how I started my career. I left the Weather Channel for a time and did some other type of media products and and other things. And, and I came back 17 years ago now for my second tour of duty, I like to say, and came back on the digital side, still with the same mission, but just doing it for different mediums and kind of grew up in this company, really. How do you go then from
1: being a storm chaser and producer, so a small team? to CEO. I'm guessing there were several different leaps there and lots of choice points about, do I want to leave this thing that I value to do this other thing that I will value differently?
0: A lot of hard work, a lot of persistence, and having great mentors and advocates to support me. But yeah, I'm a product-led leader. The product is really critical to me, and that, that's my background in product. And, you know, it was interesting because along my way, I had mentors that certain jobs would open in the company and they would say, you should go do that job. And I'm like, but that's not a product job. I don't want to do that job. And they're like, you should go do that job because it's going to give you skills that you don't have that you will need in the future. If you have a mentor, someone that you trust, then you trust them because you feel like they have their best interest. And and I was very fortunate. I had some great mentors along the way that pushed me into areas. You know, I went and took a class at Stanford and finance, you know, that's a long way from writing documentaries, right? Um, but you have to understand to do a P&L, right, and understand all of that. And so now when I mentor people, and I mentor a lot of women especially, I always say, you know, I feel your career is a tool belt and that you have naturally some tools, But if you need to go this job, what tool are you missing to do that job? And then go get that tool, right? So depending on where you want to go. And so I think that's really been a depiction of my career is I took a lot of jobs. Sometimes I took a job that was sideways instead of up. Sometimes I took a job that went two steps back to get me to go forward a lot of different ways because I needed to collect my tools in order to give me the best opportunity to be good at the job I'm in today.
1: One thing I think people don't realize when they look at someone who's incredibly successful, they project onto you that you just somehow magically got there and your journey feels different than theirs. Can you share about a time that you failed either publicly that people knew or that you just fell woefully short of meeting your standards?
0: That's a great question. You know, I think what I would say is when I left the weather company the first time, I went to work for a company in South Florida, a really interesting company. We did um, what's now called out-of-home media. Back then, it wasn't called that, but it essentially was an out-of-home media company. We built private television networks for different businesses, whether it's a retailer or banks or whatever. And I was a vice president of product in the company, a small company. We were going through a challenging time because we really needed to make a pivot in the product that we were doing. And our CEO wouldn't let us make the pivot to electronic menu boards. And that wasn't a television network. It wasn't the same thing that we were doing. You know, we had a really big QSR client and, you know, we're like, we should pivot to make electronic menu boards. Well, we didn't do it. And that was a long time ago. Now, I cannot go into any fast food restaurant without getting just a little sick to my stomach because we had that idea way before anybody else had it. Um, But that was like a pivot that we had to make. And that actually helped me make the decision to leave that company. To do that, I wanted to come back to Atlanta. I also had personal reasons. My mother was ill at the time. And I wanted to get back. And this is something that I did that a lot of people will not do in their career because it's really scary. I had to take two steps back. I took a 40% pay cut because I also needed to move into a digital world. We were in a more of a media, television-type world, and I, I saw that things were changing. I needed to move digital, it was a huge decision. And, and at first, I thought it was a total mistake that I should do that because you're like, what am I doing? I had such a good career. It wound up being the best decision that I ever made because it brought me back to the weather company. And, you know, with hard work and time, I was able to get right back where I was and continue to move forward. And I think a lot of times people think the trek to the top is straight up. And actually, it's not. There's a lot of zigzags along the way, and you have to be really open to it. And so I think that what I would say is any type of advice that I think you have to be open to sometimes zigging and zagging before you take the ascent up.
1: I love that image. And I think of leaders whose career looks like a ladder and leaders whose career would look more like climbing a pyramid. If you're climbing a pyramid and you've got the solid foundation, you're going to get there. If you've got a ladder and it buckles,
0: the fall is steeper and you may never get all the way back up. You know, it's interesting, Maureen, I never set out to be the CEO of the weather company. I mean, that was not necessarily where I thought I ever saw myself. Other people saw me there. Other people saw that I could do that. One, you know, being some mentors, my husband. It's just kind of fascinating the path here because it wasn't actually the original intention, but it it is a dream job for me. And it's, you know, a job that I I love coming to work every single day, right, because of the mission and because of the people that I work with and the great team, right, and what we do. So it's interesting how life can take you through a lot of different doors as if you're open to them.
1: You've talked about your husband, mentors, coaches... I'll call them sponsors, people who help put you in front of the right people. And I'm thinking about how many leaders I know where their perception doesn't accurately match people around them. Yeah. Either in your case, people see you as much more than you see yourself, or in the case of some others, people see them as less than they see themselves. It sounds like you listen to people around you to help you calibrate on a regular basis.
0: Oh, absolutely. I don't think any leader can do it alone. It's impossible. I think you need people in your life that are honest. Yeah, there's people that are going to agree with you, but there's also people that are going to check you. And I think that's so important because that's balance. Because sometimes you can get a little off balance and you need someone that checks you back into doing that. And that has to come from people you trust and people that you give the permission to do that to you, right? Because I think that that's really important. People and relationships... They're fundamentally, I think why we're all here is relationship is really the key to life and, you know, and how people can add to your life, how you can add to theirs Uh, and then giving back for every person that has mentored and helped me. I'm trying to do the same with leaders that I feel have so much potential or people that have so much potential. And it's so fun when you see someone that you've mentored or coached and see them to achieve something. And to go on to, you know, have a great career, it's just so incredibly satisfying.
1: It sounds like this is very important to you. I assume it's also part of your culture, not a one-off, Sherry does this, but nobody else does. How do you build that systemically into the culture?
0: Yeah, you know, um, culture is something you have to work at every day. It's not top-down. It has to be as much bottoms-up as it is tops-down, I would say putting programs in place and putting understanding that mentorship is important, um, making sure, you know, key people are having access to mentorship and encouraging that, encouraging networking. That was probably one of the biggest mistakes I did, Maureen, as you were talking about that early in my career. I didn't understand the power of networking because really I'm a little bit of an introvert. And so networking situations are like, oh, you know, those are things that you kind of dread a little bit, until you become more comfortable in your own skin, really. I didn't leverage that early enough in my career. I've I've caught up now, but I do think that those things are really important. so fostering those types of things within your workplace, where you're giving people the opportunity to go out and network and making sure that you're getting information from the outside in, instead of everything just being very, very internal. So I think you have to be really deliberate around what you're doing to drive your culture. You have to listen to your team. As hard as that may be sometimes to hear that feedback, you have to be open to it. And then you have to take action on it. If you don't, then it kind of falls on deaf ears.
1: Yeah. One of the worst things to do is ask people for their point of view and then ignore them. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially if they give you negative news.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Hey, you. Thanks wrong. a lot. We're moving <laughs> along. Yeah. <laughs> I think the culture, you know, in the company is, is so critical. I think if you have a great product and you have a great team, there's really no reason why you shouldn't be successful. Um, and, you know, you have to really put your people at the center of what you do, just like I feel you have to put your customers at the center of what you do.
1: What's next for you, Sherry, and for the weather company? What are you excited about?
0: One of the things that we're excited about is we made an announcement in August that we were going to divest out of IBM, and, and IBM uh, was divesting us. And so we'll be finding a new home as a, as a new ownership home with Francisco Partners. We're looking forward to that next chapter. We're looking forward to what opportunities are ahead for us. We definitely believe that we are a company that's primed for growth. We have a lot of new initiatives that can be accelerated as a standalone business. So I'm really looking forward to leading this standalone business and really unleashing my team to go out and innovate, and especially around AI, um, you know, uh, to build the next generation of weather forecasting models and insights for our clients and customers. You know, will definitely be, I think, a company to watch in the future.
1: That's exciting, combining the mission with safety,
0: Go ahead. that you will deliver that in a more substantive way. Absolutely. We look forward to that and, and actually helping people just even plan their sunny days, right? Weather is, impacts us every day of the year. So how do we uh, help everybody get the most out of that and live their best lives? I love that. How do we help people live their best lives? Sherry, how would people find you now and after the divestiture? You can definitely find me on LinkedIn, Sherry Backstein, and then obviously we'll have our own internet site as the weather company as well. And so then at weather.com will be the email in the future. Thank you so much. And thank
1: you to our listeners for liking us, sharing us, and for listening to Sherry and engaging in both using weather data and insights and also taking steps to conserve so that we all have a better experience in the future on our shared planet.
0: This is great. Thanks, Maureen, for the conversation. It's always great to see you. Thank you.